Good morning again, everyone. It's great to be here with you on the second uh, Sunday of the Easter season. And we started last week a new series called Encounters with Jesus. And we talked about Mary, the two Marys, encounter with Jesus at the tomb, at the empty tomb, and what that meant for them, how it changed everything for their lives. And so we're going to go through this season of Easter looking at different encounters with Jesus. And this morning we're looking at the encounter with Nicodemus. So let me pray for our time together. Father, I pray that you would use this passage to teach us what we need to learn about you, that you would give us the knowledge requisite to following you, to joining you in what you're doing. But Father, knowledge isn't enough. I pray that you would change our hearts. Just as Jesus, you taught Nicodemus these many centuries ago about being born again of the Spirit, I pray that that would be the encounter that each of us has again this morning or has for the first time, that we would be born anew, that we would be born into a whole new way of being human. Lord, I pray that you would bless the reading and now the preaching of your word to the good of your people and to the good of your world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably heard the story or read the story, The Velveteen Rabbit, uh, probably growing up as a child or... Uh, now reading it to your children, and the Velveteen Rabbit tells the story of a stuffed rabbit and his quest to become real through the love of the boy who owns him. And when the boy's favorite toy is misplaced, the Velveteen Rabbit is given to the boy very quickly as a replacement. But the boy soon takes to this rabbit. He soon begins to love the rabbit. And so as any stuffed animal does over time, the Velveteen Rabbit becomes shabbier and shabbier. It loses some of, its, uh, some of its hair, and its eyes begin to fall out. But the boy loves him, no matter what. And at one point in the story, the rabbit asks the skin horse, what does it mean to be real? Does it mean having things buzz around inside of you and having a stick-out handle? And the skin horse says, real isn't how you're made. It's the thing that happens to you. And when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse. But when you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except to the people who don't understand. Once you are real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. And we're talking this morning about being changed by another, being loved by another in such a way that it gets into the nooks and crannies of who you are and it changes you from the inside out that we're taking hold of a a transformative love that actually makes us free, it makes us alive, it makes us real. But to get there, we have to go with Nicodemus through the no one of the gospel. That Jesus says no one can enter the kingdom unless they are born again. Now Nicodemus, as it says in the text, is a Pharisee. He's a, a religious leader. He's a person who's supposed to weigh in and give judgments on religious matters. And so Nicodemus notices this very unconventional rabbi gaining a great following. He tracks him down 
and ask him to explain himself. And he says, I see you do great things. It seems you're from God because obviously no one could do the things that you're doing if you're from God. But Jesus doesn't answer him directly. It's not even a question. It's just a statement. But Jesus turns it around and challenges Nicodemus. He says, no one can see the kingdom unless he is born again. Nicodemus is the epitome of a cultural, intellectual, religious elite. He's the teacher of Israel. And so it would be very right for him to be incredulous because Jesus is saying that to enter into the kingdom, that race doesn't matter, circumcision doesn't matter, law-keeping doesn't matter, acts of piety doesn't matter, scriptural knowledge doesn't matter. None of these things can get you in. And in fact, they can actually be barriers to you seeing the kingdom of God. You must actually receive new spiritual life from God. Now, it's a little bit difficult to empathize with Nicodemus because the the factors that he would think about as making him presentable to God seem so very strange and far off to us. But think about in our own lives. Every now and then, something positive will bubble up to the surface We'll have some achievement, and we'll look at it and say, hmm, that was pretty good. I hope my friends notice this. Something impressive, something successful bubbles up to the surface. And we do the opposite with that than we do with something negative. With the negative, we tell ourselves, well, this isn't all that I am. And we tell others, if you just knew the circumstances— If you knew all the contributing factors to this decision, if you knew all of me, you wouldn't hold this so much against me. But when the good things happen, we instinctively say, this is me. This defines me. This is who I am, at least momentarily. David Letterman that I quoted for you in your bulletin says, every night about his own job, you're trying to prove your self-worth. You want to be the absolute best, wittiest, smartest, most charming, best-smelling version of yourself. And if I can make people enjoy the experience and have a higher regard for me when I'm finished, it makes me feel like an entire person. If I come short, short of that, I'm not happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. What does the Velveteen Rabbit say, however? I may be shabby, I may be ugly in appearance, but I am real. I am loved in spite of my external appearance. When Jesus takes hold of you, when you're transformed by his love, you begin to say, no matter my performance, no matter my success or my failure, I can rest in knowing that Jesus has made me real and it lasts always. And so then we can absorb the negative things without falling into despair because God says you are deeply loved in spite of those negative things, in spite of your failure. And we can appraise the good appropriately because God says that it's actually he who makes you beautiful and lovely and ultimately worthy. And so you see, coming to Christianity, coming to Jesus is not just a new way of seeing It's not that we say, I have seen the light. I have perceived, Jesus, that you are a great teacher. I apprehend the truth. But it's a whole new order of being. Jesus says, you must be born again. Now, we know what people think of born-again people. If you 
asked people on the street to list those who they would least want as a neighbor. It would be axe murderer and born-again Christian. That's who people don't want to live by. P.J. O'Rourke, the funny writer, says, making fun of born-again Christians is like hunting dairy cows with a high-powered rifle and scope. You see, born-again people are seen as wet blankets, as dogmatic fundamentalists, as conservative rule followers trying to curry favor with God, and oftentimes those things are very true. But you see, it exactly contradicts Jesus' metaphor because Nicodemus is the ultimate rule follower. He's the ultimate conservative. He's the ultimate moralist, and Jesus tells him that he must be born again. To us, you see, born again is a subculture of Christianity. It's a a checkbox on a census form. But to Jesus, he thinks, he says, he claims that it's the only way into the kingdom. It's the only way to God. It is Christianity, in other words. And no one is a Christian without being born again. Now, this word for again, anothen, it can have a dual meaning. It can mean again, as it's stated here, or it can mean from above. And Jesus doesn't clarify which. But Nicodemus, you see, only seems to grasp the first meaning. He says, well, how can anyone enter into his mother's womb for a second time? It's preposterous to him that this could be what Jesus is talking about because he's only grasping one of the meanings. But Jesus just restates his point and adds a bit of commentary. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You see, it's not just being born a second time. It's being born again from above. It's that the Spirit comes in and gives you, grants you new life. Because flesh here, this word is not simply skin. It's not just our epidermis, but it's the organizing principle of a life that exists on its own power, that it's autonomous. And so, of course, it's impossible for flesh That in our material selves, in our normal humanity, it's impossible for us to grasp the kingdom because it's committed to the one thing that's completely opposed to the kingdom, and that is self-sufficiency. That is autonomy. Mark Lilla, who's a professor at Columbia, wrote in the New York Times a number of years ago, well, what does it mean to be born again? One thing Jesus seems to be telling Nicodemus is that He must recognize his own insufficiency, that he will have to turn his back on his autonomous, seemingly happy life and be reborn as a human being who understands his dependency on something greater. That seems like a radical challenge to our freedom because it is. Now, I don't know about Mark Lilla's religious commitments. As far as I know, he's not a Christian, but he writes very perceptively about what does it mean to be born again. It's not a checkbox. It's not a subculture of Christianity, but it's giving up self-sufficiency so that the Spirit comes in and changes us utterly. Christianity, you see, isn't simply a philosophy that you adopt. It's not a way of life that you take up but it's a spiritual transformation that takes you up. You see, we, we can take up golf. We can take up yoga. We can take up guitar. We can take up philosophy. But Christianity is something that you can't just take up. It's something that, if it's something at all in your life, it's something that has taken you up irreversibly. 
you, Jesus is saying, even you, Nicodemus, must be born again. You need a total and complete spiritual transformation. There's a world of difference between the religion that Nicodemus was committed to and being born again from above. You see, Christianity, friends, is for those who are done with religion. Christianity is those who are done with rule following and card counting. It's Christianity is, is for those who are done with trying to be a better person, trying to measure up to whatever standard we find to be valuable. Christianity, Jesus is for the rebels. Jesus is for the rule, follow, rule breakers who know it. It's not the immoral person, the sinner, the failure who has a tough, a tough time with Christianity. But it's the one who is very good at life, the one who's made it, the one who's adept at navigating life or navigating religion. It's those of us who have a hard time with what Jesus is really saying. Daniel Halper in the, of the Weekly Standard wrote about former New York mayor Michael Bloomberg, pledging to spend $50 million this year to push gun control. And for this and other deeds, such as fighting obesity and smoking, Michael Bloomberg apparently believes he's going to heaven. He says, I'm telling you, if there's a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not even stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Christianity is very difficult for the one who's good at life, who's good at navigating life, who's made it, who's good at religion. But Jesus says that you must go through the no one of the gospel, and that no one says that you must be born again from above. But you see, if we had kept reading in our passage, we would have gotten to the classic, famous statement of Christianity, the one that you see held up at at soccer games and football games. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so right before we read this famous passage of the expansiveness of God's love, we are told, first of all, how difficult it is for anyone to get in. And so maybe you're wondering, well, if God loves the world so much, why is there any boundary to that love at all? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, we wrestle with exclusivity. It's a concept in our culture that we're absolutely allergic to. And if you say in 21st century Western culture that God loves someone in a unique way, way, well, we think, well, that's a stupid idea. But in an ancient culture or a traditional culture, if you say God loves everyone equally, well, that's a stupid idea. And so we need to be careful not to simply just go along with the prejudices of our own culture, of our particular historic moment, because in reality, the uniqueness and the universality go hand in hand, and you can't have one without the the other, or you completely sterilize God's love. You see, Religious people, traditionally-minded people, have no problem at all with the idea of uniqueness. In fact, much of their system is built upon it. What they struggle with is this idea of the universality of God's love. They're heavy on the no one. They don't like the everyone. 
21st century Westerners, on the other hand, have no problem with the idea of universality, but they struggle with the concept of uniqueness. They love the everyone, they hate the no one. So religious people like Nicodemus, who embrace uniqueness and are motivated by this fear of stepping outside of the boundary lines or fear of someone who doesn't have their credentials getting inside the boundary, their relationship with God is more love me because I've complied. Love me, God, allow me into your kingdom because look at my credentials. Look at the good life that I've lived. And in their compliance, of course, they're very quick to shut others out and to limit the scope, the universality of the gospel. However, postmodern, secular, millennials, whatever you want to call us these days, you see, we embrace universality and are attracted to the apparent freedom of choosing the religious system that best fits our values and that's most tolerant-seeming. But we don't allow any uniqueness among religious systems, that everyone should receive God's love equally irrespective of their belief system. And this is a very bold claim and a bold idea. It sounds very tolerant, but it actually relativizes everyone's religious claims everywhere based upon our own individual preferences. But you see, the gospel, friends, is unique and it's universal. There's a no one and an everyone. And what's so utterly unique about the everyone of the gospel is that it goes through a cross. It goes through a sacrifice. It goes through a son of God being given as a gift to humanity. That's the uniqueness of the everyone. And no universal claiming system can say that. The gospel claim of everyone goes through a cross. It goes through God enduring suffering in order to open up new life to everyone. But you see, there has to be a no one as well, or else you undermine the whole need for a cross. And you make Jesus a sad joke. You make Jesus, death, the most sad and unnecessary work in all of human history. There's a no one and an everyone. Leslie Newbigin, who you've heard me quote here before, if you've been around a while, was a, a bishop from England who lived in India for about 30 years and became an expert on the pluralism that existed th- there and then came back to, this, to the, the West and began to see that the same ideas of pluralism existed there that he had experienced in Hinduism. And he says, to reject the uniqueness and the universality in the alleged interest of mutual tolerance among the world's religions is to deny the message at their center. If there are many different revelations, then the human family has no center for its unity. If the Krishna of the Puranas and the Jesus of the Gospels are both revelations of God, then we must say, and this is what Hinduism in the end does say, that God is unknown and unknowable. Each of us, in the end, is shut up in his own world of ideas. He must find God in the depths of his own being because there is no action by which God gives himself to be known by us. The uniqueness, his only son, corresponds to the universality, the whoever, because God is love in action. You see, if you lose either the uniqueness or the universality, the no one or the everyone, you not only minimize God's love, but you 
lose the knowability of God altogether. Everyone is invited. Everyone is called to come in. But see, not everyone can come in. Not because God's love is limited, but because of the limits of our own willingness to see ourselves in need of grace. That's the no one. That is saying that in order to be born again, you must see yourself in need of God's grace. You must see yourself in need of a spiritual transformation from above, not from within. Well, what about Nicodemus? Where does his story end? Well, it it could be that he's come to check up on Jesus on behalf of the religious establishment to try and get this rabbi in line. Or it could be that he's truly perplexed. He's investigating. He's seeking. He's asking whether this man is who he claims to be. Well, which one is it? Well, notice, when does he go see Jesus? He goes under the cover of darkness. John points this out because Nicodemus is sort of sneaking to go see Jesus. He's not sure if Jesus is all he's cracked up to be, and he doesn't want to give the impression to anyone else that he has now adopted Jesus' system. What will people think? But he also is saying no one could do these things if he weren't from God. Jesus, help me understand. Help me believe if you're the one. And then we see later in John's gospel, Nicodemus shows up in two very prominent episodes. He defends Jesus before the Sanhedrin, and then he helps prepare Jesus' body for burial. So he goes through the no one of the gospel. He sees himself as an everyone now. He says, Jesus, transform me. If I must be born again, if that's what it takes, give it to me. Let me have it. You see, if anyone could get in on their religious credentials, it would be Nicodemus. But he comes to Jesus with his hat in hand and says, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who's come to save Israel? And this is the question that we must ultimately wrestle with. Do we want to see ourselves like Michael Bloomberg? Or do we want to see ourselves like this brand new velveteen rabbit? Do we want to be loved because of how beautiful we are and how we present ourselves and because of the plaques on our wall and our credentials? Or do we want very deep down inside where we're sometimes afraid to look? Do we want someone to be able to see that our fur is all rubbed out and that we're shabby and dingy and yet love us anyway? Which one of those do we want? And when we answer that question, then we are answering, what do we think of Jesus? Because we can come to Jesus as the Velveteen Rabbit. We can't come to Jesus as Michael Bloomberg. He wants us to be real, to be honest about who we are, to stop trying to to hide our broken parts by behaving well. Jesus says no one can come in on their own record but everyone can be accepted on the basis of his. So what are you going to do this morning with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to deal with that part of our heart that is so resistant to grace. It seems like such a strange concept to resist grace, to resist forgiveness, and yet we all have pockets 
in our heart, in our lives, where we do that very thing. Lord, I pray that no one would think that I've been hard on former Mayor Bloomberg, that he, just as we all are, are in need of grace. And so I pray that, his, that your grace would find him as well. Lord, we pray as we come to the table that you would meet us with grace, that we would see our need, that we would stand before you, and that we would say yes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.